You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. There are five major publishers in the country, and the federal government wants it to stay that way. So it's suing to stop the number one publisher, Penguin Random House, from buying the number four publisher, Simon & Schuster, in a more than $2 billion deal. Joining me is Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. Well, first of all, what is the goal of this merger? Well, the goal of the merger, according to what the companies are saying now, is to become more efficient. I mean, essentially, it's what most big merging parties would say. But in order to provide better clout or better leverage as against Amazon, you know, which is a big seller of books out there, and also just to become more efficient as some of the advances that go to the really big top-selling authors have gone up. The Justice Department is suing, and it says if the merger went ahead, the deal would give Penguin Random House nearly half the market for publishing rights to blockbuster books, while its nearest competitors will be less than half its size. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us about why the Justice Department is suing here. Well, it's an interesting theory because usually when two companies come together, what the Justice Department is looking at is whether they are two competing sellers of products, and as a result of the merger, the price of those products they sell will go up because they'll have more market power and they'll have the ability to increase the price. This is what's called a monopsony case. They are buyers of products, so essentially they are paying authors for the rights to publish those authors' works, their books. And the concern here is that if they come together and they have that much leverage, they're that much bigger than all the other publishing houses that could be bidding for these top-selling books, that authors will start getting paid less. And as authors start to get paid less, fewer can afford to write, and the upshot would be fewer books for consumers to buy, less innovation, less variety. So the concern here is the fees that get paid to authors to write books, and they're mostly focusing on big top-selling authors. They're arguing that a top-selling author, the competition will be less because it will be down to four large publishers instead of five. I mean, is that a good argument? 
Yes, yeah, so it's four rather than five, which a five to four merger, you know, it depends on the industry. It depends on market shares. Sometimes these kinds of cases have been successful for the DOJ and sometimes not. Five to four is sort of borderline. But in this case, it looks like the market would be very weighed toward the merged entity. What the DOJ is saying here, they don't give exact market shares, but what they're saying is that together they'd be far larger than the other three that are left. So even unilaterally, they'd have this ability to depress the wages being paid to authors. And they do actually, June, have a lot of examples in the complaint of bidding that occurred that drove these advances way up. It was just bidding between these two companies, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, that ultimately upped some of these advances by sometimes even in the millions of dollars. So they do have examples of where the two of them go head-to-head and compete to increase those prices. So theoretically, as a result of this merger, that might not happen anymore because the other three that are left just may simply not be able to play in the same ballpark. Does any part of the Justice Department's intent here concern the fact that one of these companies is German? Oh, no, I don't think so at all. You know, if there was any kind of concern about a German buyer, it would actually be dealt with the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., you know, over the Department of Justice, that they'll look at foreign buyers and ask whether there's a, you know, U.S. national security issue. In this case, I don't think that is of concern or even being contemplated by the DOJ. I think the main issue here is a new interest, particularly pushed by Merrick Garland and promoted by Biden's July executive order to look at the impact of mergers on labor and on prices that are paid. It's always been a theory of harm in antitrust, but not used often, and rarely is there a lawsuit brought based on this theory. So it's kind of novel. I just say kind of because it is a valid antitrust theory. There have been mergers that have settled in the past and not gone to litigation on the basis of this kind of depressing the wages or monopsony type theory, particularly in agriculture. But what we haven't seen is a lawsuit on this basis. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in court here. The Authors Guild, which supports the DOJ's complaint, said The DOJ statements recognize the burden book authors currently face, and we hope that today's decision is a signal that the DOJ may be finally expanding the definition of antitrust to consider the impact on creators. Do you think that's what's going on here? Well, I think it's meant to describe what I just talked about. I have seen a lot of references to the concept that they're expanding ideas in antitrust and expanding the harms. I don't so much see it as an expansion because impact on creators, or not just creators, but impact on any kind of a wage earner, let's say, has been an issue in antitrust in the past. It just doesn't come up a lot, and we haven't seen a lawsuit. So I think to some observers, this seems very novel. But in the agriculture markets, for example, the Department of Justice will always look at the prices paid to the small farmers by, let's say, meat processors that are trying to merge. And in fact, there have been antitrust price-fixing lawsuits in the past related to the fixing of wages paid to creators in Silicon Valley. So it's not the first time that this has been considered an antitrust harm. It's just the first time we're going to see a merger that is challenged in court on the basis of that theory. So, Jen, the publishers say they'll fight this lawsuit. What are their arguments against it? Right. Well, I think they they have a lot of different responses here. There's some very interesting issues. I think first they say, look, this is going to create efficiencies and allow us to deal or have better clout against Amazon and deal with this, you know, entity that drives the price for books down. They also say that the 
relevant market as defined by the DOJ is not correct. So the DOJ is considering here only publishing by the big five. As you noted, they're calling it a five to four. But there are other publishing houses. There are smaller publishers. There are independent publishers. And there's also self-publishing. And I think if you include all of those in the market, what it means is that the market shares of these two merging parties would be lower. And I think they can argue that they're not looking at the right market, and they also face competition from some of these smaller publishers, and therefore it's not really a five to four. You know, they can argue that as well. How much does Amazon play in here as a factor? The Amazon issue is interesting because the Amazon defense, I think, is used fairly often nowadays <laughs> in, in mergers <laughs> because it's become so big and such a conglomerate and, and involved in, in so many different areas and in industries, uh, particularly in the types of items that it sells. Uh, and so the need to come together to fight against Amazon, I think, is a common defense. What I'll say about it, in the case it's interesting because the DOJ does cite to one document where one of the executives from one of the companies says, well, I don't really buy into that defense. I get that that's what our defense is now, but I, I don't really buy into it. And, and they've also cited two documents that show that the intention post-merger would be to, to align more with Amazon and not necessarily to have better leverage against Amazon. So I think the evidence is going to have to show how the Amazon factor really weighs in here. But the only other thing I'll say is that an argument that we need to come together to fight against some other really big behemoth in, in the M&A world is never really a great argument. Um, it's made a lot. It, it doesn't usually work. So um, what will be the main question here? Is it mainly what the market is? What the market is is a big question and what the shares are and whether this is truly a five to four. I think where the efficiencies are and what they are will be a big question, and that's obviously going to depend on the documents and the facts. These companies obviously studied the efficiencies that they expect to be generated, and it'll be important to see what they're saying about it and why they really need to merge. If they have documents that just simply say, look, we'll take over the market, we'll be this enormous number one by virtue of this deal, obviously that's going to be unhelpful to them. Are they still unaware of what emails and documents like that do to a case? <laughs> you know, emails and documents like that always exist. And, and the issue is really, what does the bulk of the evidence show? What does the bulk of the evidence say? It's easy to take emails and documents and sort of cherry pick and make a company look bad. And certainly what the DOJ cites in his complaint is going to be some of the better documents that support its case. But it depends what else is out there. And it may be that there are an overwhelming number of documents that talk about the efficiencies to be derived, pro-competitive efficiencies to be derived from the deal, or the need to come together to be able to better distribute books by publishers, you know, provide better backing for the books so that they sell better, which would be a benefit to authors. So, you know, as much as they understand what those documents say in these big companies. You can have a compliance program, but you can't control what all of those documents say. But if you have a handful of bad documents out of a very large mass, I don't think that's necessarily going to sway a judge. Is this lawsuit a sign of more aggressive antitrust enforcement in the Biden administration? I do think it is, June, yes. I mean, they're going to court with what is a new theory to be tested in court. That's always a little bit risky. Um, they're going to court in what they're calling a five to four merger, which again isn't, you know, it's one of these borderline situations. You know, six to five is rarely ever going to be 
challenged. A four to three is probably often going to be challenged. That five to four is right in between. It's sort of a sometimes will be challenged. And it was your very first impression when you said, well, look, it's a five to four. Do they really think that there will be harm in a market? I think a judge will be asking the same thing. So it's not the easiest case for them. It's not necessarily a slam dunk. And, and because of that, and, and it has focuses on labor, which, which again is somewhat new. So because of all that, I would say, yes, it is showing that they intend to be more aggressive. So in the past, we've talked about, you know, the push for more aggressive antitrust enforcement, particularly with the tech companies. Do you see any focus of the Biden administration? I think the Biden administration is focusing across the board on industries that they believe in the past 20 years have consolidated quite a bit and have probably hit what they view as what should be the peak of their consolidation. Now, they haven't really talked about publishing. They generally tend to talk about agriculture, airlines, some of the big tech areas, you know, social media platforms, of course, with Facebook having bought Instagram and WhatsApp, even beer markets they talk about, pharmaceuticals, certainly. So I haven't really heard them talk about publishing, but it is a market that has seen quite a bit of consolidation. And it is down to five. There used to be quite a few bigger entities. You saw, let me just pull it up. I have a list here. And by the way, there also is a past history of collusion amongst the big five. In 2012, there was a lawsuit in which a district court determined that they'd engaged in a price-fixing conspiracy. So, you know, these companies are not necessarily completely in the clear on this stuff. But you've seen Random House and Schuster haven't done, I think, a lot of acquiring. But HarperCollins publishers recently acquired Hofton Mifflin Harcourt and Hachette recently acquired Workman Publishing. So, and I think before those two deals, there were also a few smaller deals. And I think generally what the DOJ and FTC want to do at this point is just stem the tide of further consolidation in industries that are fairly consolidated. And I say fairly consolidated because, again, we're talking about five here and maybe more depending on how you define the market. But there has been so much criticism from the antitrust bar, from academics, from economists in the last 10 years, and so many studies done showing that across the board that lax antitrust enforcement has allowed for too much consolidation, just in general, not a specific industry, but just in general. So I think now the focus for the DOJ and FTC is just generally, we're just going to stem the tide. So every time we get a merger in front of us that is in an industry where we've seen quite a bit of consolidation in the last 10 or 20 years, we're going to look more closely at that industry and possibly challenge that deal. I just wonder, how many books really have competitive publishing? You know, you have a couple of big titles a year. You have former President Obama. Right. You have, But how many of these books really have this kind of competitive auctioning and stuff? It, it seems like it's just a handful, really. Yeah, you know, they don't really get into volume. And to be perfectly honest, for antitrust purposes, volume doesn't really matter. You know, two big companies can come together. And even if it's just a tiny segment of their businesses, representing a very small percentage of their own revenues, um, that could create harm in a market. The DOJ or the FTC will still go ahead and challenge that because it, it, it's not like, well, if this only harms a handful of consumers or a small group of consumers, well, then, you know, we'll let it go. If it could harm, you know, any small group of consumers, they will go ahead and challenge the deal. And I think that at least what they talk about in this case is that 
the advances, even if it is a fairly small group of authors in the scheme of all publishing, that the advances that have been extended by the big five are, are huge in the last couple of years, you know, in the billions. And that supports the writing. So Penguin, Random House, and Simon & Schuster said that they'd fight this lawsuit vigorously, noting that the government had not alleged that the deal would harm competition in book sales. Where does that factor in? Yeah, they're pointing to the fact that this is a monopsony case and not a monopoly case. They're saying, look, they're not saying that book prices for consumers like you and me will go up, that when you go to buy a book, the prices are going to be higher, that what they're doing isn't going to impact those prices. And that's the more traditional antitrust harm. So, But I think that's really just smoke and mirrors because, you know, again, this is a monopsony case, and what they're alleging is harm to what's paid to the authors. And we can't just ignore that. I mean, that is an antitrust harm even if we're not talking about harm to the people who buy the books. As always, it's great to have you on the show, Jen. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. A case over a censure at a Texas community college found its way to the highest court in the land this week. David Wilson had a rocky relationship with other trustees during his tenure on the Houston Community College System Board. So when the board censured Wilson for his constant criticism and took steps to limit his legislative privileges, Wilson sued, alleging a violation of his First Amendment rights. Justices on both sides of the ideological spectrum seemed ready to side with the college. Here are Justices Samuel Alito and Sonia Sotomayor. This is a very easy case. One person says something derogatory about another person, and then the other person responds by saying something derogatory about the first person. That's, that's not a violation. Nobody's free speech rights are violated there. 
You've got an easy case on censure, historically. Joining me is First Amendment law expert Eugene Volok, a professor at UCLA Law School. Eugene, tell us about Wilson's relationship with the board. So David Wilson was an elected member of the Community College Board and was a critic of other board members. He voiced concerns that the trustees were violating the board's bylaws. He uh, arranged robocalls regarding the board's actions. He filed a lawsuit against the individual board trustees and against the community college uh, system. And he hired a private investigator to determine whether one of the trustees resided in the district in which he was elected. He had a website where he was uh, criticizing fellow trustees and the Houston Community College system. So they thought he wasn't playing well with others, and they censured him. They publicly chastised him, and they also suspended a few of his privileges having to do with reimbursement for various expenses and such. But the key question facing the U.S. Supreme Court is whether this censure, this public censure for Wilson's speech is a violation of Wilson's First Amendment right. Explain why the Fifth Circuit allowed the case to proceed. So the Fifth Circuit concluded that censure is essentially a form of official action, that it's retaliation for constitutionally protected speech, and that therefore it is presumptively unconstitutional because it's a violation of the First Amendment to retaliate for speech. And if you think about it, in other contexts, censures are seen as more than just government criticism. They're seen as a kind of formal disciplinary action. For example, generally speaking, before a lawyer can be formally censured by the bar, not even suspended or disbarred, but just formally censured, there generally speaking have to be hearings. If he is being censured for his constitutionally protected speech, there might well be a First Amendment violation. So the Fifth Circuit concluded that likewise, this sort of censure is more than just government speech criticizing a member, but rather it is essentially a form of disciplinary action that's subject to First Amendment constraint. The question before the U.S. Supreme Court is whether that's indeed so, or whether that it's either just government speech the government can engage in under any circumstances, or perhaps whether more specifically there's just a tradition of government bodies being able to censure their own members, indeed as a disciplinary action, and that that makes it quite different from situations where there are employees, let's say, or students or members of the bar or doctors being censured by administrative boards. What were the main concerns the justices had? Well, there were a couple. One was that they were skeptical that just a label censure is really that significant here. They pointed out that, of course, the government can speak out in all sorts of ways, including about particular people, especially in the context of political fights among elected officials. So they were skeptical that there is really a sharp divide between censure and ordinary government speech, again, at least when it comes to speech about government officials. The other concern that they had is just there's a pretty long-standing tradition of government bodies being able to censure their own members. Houses of Congress are entitled to and often do censure their own members, and sometimes they do so for the member's speech. And the justices care a lot about tradition. Occasionally they do invalidate long-standing traditions, but they're quite hesitant to do so. Did some of the justices express concerns about ruling on clashes between politicians and getting into that area? Uh, right. Uh, but I think specifically what they were concerned about uh, was uh, um, interfering with what they they understand to be uh, a, a very specific kind of clash, which is a clash, of, which is a war of words. Somebody says something sharply criticizing uh, his colleagues, then they say something sharply criticizing him. 
I think there are, uh, many of them took the view that that's really something that's kind of normal in politics. Now, not all clashes among politicians uh, uh, are immune from uh, constitutional scrutiny. So the Supreme Court has, for example, held that uh, um, Congress is limited in its ability to just exclude members uh, from Congress. That's a tangible action, and that needs to be consistent with the specific rules for expulsion that uh, the Constitution sets forth. Likewise, the court in another case said that you can't just uh, that a state legislature can't just exclude an elected member uh, uh, based on his speech. Uh, but when it comes to these kinds of uh, essentially mutual public criticisms, I think the justices uh, uh, think that that's something that ought to be left to the political process. So. Both liberal justice Sonia Sotomayor and conservative justice Samuel Alito said this was an easy case on censure. Does that tell you where the court is going? Yeah, it sounded from the argument that the justices would reverse the Fifth Circuit and say that uh, this kind of political censure is basically immune from First Amendment scrutiny. The interesting question is how broad the opinion will be. So, for example, you can imagine an opinion that says, well, any kind of censure is just government speech, and the government is entitled to say what it wants. That would suggest that the bar could censure a lawyer simply because it doesn't like his politics, or that the government as employer, let's say a university, could formally censure a faculty member for the faculty member's research, let's say. That would be quite a broad ruling and might unduly interfere with First Amendment rights in some situations, because in many contexts, the law does recognize that censure, formal reprimand, is a form of disciplinary action, kind of a form of employment action that's not quite the same, of course, as firing or demotion, but that's in that same category. Or it could decide in a narrower theory, which is simply that this is a form of government speech that has long been recognized as within government power precisely because it's politicians who are fighting it out with each other. And all of them have political power. And as a result, it should be left to the political process. Justice Kavanaugh said, do we have to get into any of this in this case? Does it seem as if they're more likely to issue a narrow ruling? That's always difficult to predict. Uh, A lot depends on who's assigned to write the opinion, uh, what position they're inclined to take, uh, of course, whether it's things they can convince their colleagues of, but colleagues are often uh, are often willing to defer in some measure to the authoring justice. Very hard to predict for moral argument. Do you think that if they don't rule in Wilson's favor, that it could have a chilling effect on speech at these, you know, school boards? Well, again, I think the question is how broad the decision is going to be. If they say, "Hey, government speech, the uh, government can censure anybody it wants." And then as a result, the government does start uh, formally censuring, again, let's say, university faculty members, students, uh, uh, doctors, lawyers for their speech, then I think a lot of people would be chilled uh, because uh, uh, it's the kind of formal government action that goes into your file that might be used as a basis in the future for increasing punishments uh, in other situations. Uh, It'll be understood by the public as kind of a disciplinary measure. Uh, So yes, I do think that would be quite chilling. On the other hand, if all they say is, well, government uh, elected officials are entitled to censure their colleagues, I don't think it'll be particularly chilling because uh, these are political actors. You have to have a 
thick skin if you're going to be a politician, uh, even somebody who just is elect, elected to a relatively lower level office like Community College Trustees Board. Presumably, you are familiar with sharp criticism from voters, from the media, and from your colleagues, and presumably you're not going to be much deterred by it. Do you think they took this case because the Fifth Circuit was way out of line, or they just like interesting free speech cases? You know, uh, it's an interesting question. Houston uh, uh, Community College System's uh, uh, petition claims that there is a disagreement among lower courts, a a so-called circuit split, with the Fifth Circuit taking one view and other circuits taking another. And uh, that's uh, that's often an important ground for for the court to uh, hear a case, to resolve the disagreement among lower courts. The First Amendment is supposed to be the same throughout the country. Thanks, Eugene. That's Professor Eugene Volokh of UCLA Law School. Coming up next, the Supreme Court signals it will strike down New York's gun control law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Thanks, Eugene. That's Professor Eugene Volokh of UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.